With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 49, Jack the Ripper. So we're talking about Jack the Ripper, though, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. So, um, yeah, let me just get my notes up, too, because all, all, all this stuff I haven't um, thought about for since I've written the book. You know <laughs> yeah, what? I think, I think for you it'll kind of be like riding a bike. I, I will see. <laughs> okay. All right, so start off by saying your name and title. Jeez, I guess I'm going by that handle, Dr. Vronsky, these days. Mm -hmm. Um, Since I got papered up not that long ago, about 10 years ago, so I might as well milk it for all it's worth. Oh, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, so Dr. Vronsky, I'm a forensic geohistorian. In that cut, Dr. Peter Vronsky is referring to his book, The Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present, where he breaks down our seemingly endless fascination with serial killers talk about Jack the Ripper, um, the serial killer, the the mother of all serial killers, uh, or at least in people's minds. Now, there are a lot of theories about Jack the Ripper, who he was, who his victims were, but the fact is, the case has never been solved. The fact that a lot of the police records on the murder investigations are gone, including the transcripts from the coroner's inquests, a sort of medical trial with witnesses to explain what happened after each of the five murders, known as the Canonical Five, believed to be perpetrated by Jack the Ripper. But what is available are the newspaper articles, opinion pieces, and illustrations from the time, which are far from fact, and should not only be taken with a grain of salt, but with a pound of flesh, because when it comes to describing who Jack the Ripper's victims were, It's clear that many of these articles had an agenda beyond selling lots of newspapers. They wanted to keep the story going, which meant new twists and turns had to be revealed, whether they were fact or fiction. But beyond financial motivations, whether intentionally or subconsciously, the way the victims were treated continued to push a totally male-centered worldview, an agenda about what a woman's role was in the family and society back in the Victorian era, where the definition of the ultimate in womanhood was to be a mother, to maintain a home for her husband, be a caretaker to all, and to do so without complaint, immaculately dressed, and groomed to perfection. Falling short of that, even if it was through no fault of her own, a woman who had lost her husband and her children through quote-unquote moral weakness, say alcohol consumption, was considered a quote broken woman, A so-called female drunkard was considered an abomination, 
There was also what was referred to as a fallen woman, someone who had engaged in an extramarital affair. And if a woman was on their own and had no support and was forced into prostitution in the eyes of Victorian society, either the broken woman or the fallen woman, there was no distinction. In either case, it was their fault, no matter what the circumstances were, the woman was to blame. So keep that in mind as we chronicle the Whitechapel murders. In 1887, a year before the murder spree began, the city of London was teeming with people, industry, and contradictions. There was a vast divide between the rich and the poor, conditions which Charles Dickens would plumb for his novels about character and society. On the one hand, 1887 was a year of celebrations, the year of Queen Victoria's Grand Jubilee, honoring 50 years on the throne. National celebrations would take place, including a grand banquet where 50 European kings and princes had been invited. No expense had been spared. But in the east end of London, tucked away from the parades, galas, and balls, Queen Victoria's other subjects lived in horrific conditions. A kind of abject poverty described in Oliver Twist and David Copperfield, which would give birth to the term Dickensian because of the way Dickens was able to so vividly describe the abhorrent conditions and social structures in place that not only kept working people down, but often one day's labor away from being kicked out onto the streets. The only safety net was the workhouse, which many believe was worse than living rough on the street. The east end of London was densely populated. There wasn't enough space or housing to accommodate its residents who lived in squalor, overcrowded conditions. It wasn't uncommon for a large family to live in one room without plumbing or running water, and nearby factories belched out soot and smoke alongside tanneries, slaughterhouses, and breweries. It was well known that most of the drinking water in London was contaminated, and it was really common for residents to drink beer as their primary source of water. Life there wasn't pretty or picturesque. It was squalor and disease. Often residents had no choice but to slop the contents of their chamber pots into the street. Between the open sewage, the dank and dirty conditions, and vermin-infested rooms, disease would spread like wildfire. Because it was so crowded inside, a lot of action took place on the streets, in the markets. There was a lot of socializing, and there's a lot of crime, and the docks were busy. London was the trading capital of the Victorian era, but times were especially tough during the late 1880s. There was a recession going on. For many on the East End, just having the ability to secure a place to lay their head every night at a common lodging house, where you could temporarily rent a single flea-infested bed, was a real struggle. You know, the growth of um, serial killers is also associated with the growth of um, a victim pool. And, and, and so marginalized victims have always been the preferred targets of serial killers. And Whitechapel fits that bill perfectly in a way, as, as does industrialization in a way at that time. Um, it, it is a, you know, it's about disposable labor. We got work for you today. Uh, you got, you know, your rent covered. Uh, if, if we don't, we can fire you and um, at will. Kind of the way it is today in the way that the industrial age was for smaller population base at that time, are breeding grounds for these kinds of serial predators. 
Then this den of iniquity, a pressure cooker of suffering, add to that the rise of anti-Semitism with the influx of Jewish refugees escaping pogroms in Eastern Europe, and the backlash against Irish immigrants themselves desperate for opportunity. And the people living in these conditions were desperate for change. There were frequent demonstrations which led to public unrest in Trafalgar Square, where each night hundreds of men, women, and children slept homeless because they had nowhere to go and no support. A woman named Marianne Nichols, or Polly as she was called, had slept rough many nights in Whitechapel since she'd left her husband and children. But it hadn't always been that way for Polly, who'd been born into a working-class family. She'd married a printer and had five children. It's unclear if she left her family because her husband was having an affair with a neighbor, or because, as her husband told the tale, Polly was an alcoholic, a broken woman. But one thing there is absolutely no proof of was that she was a sex worker. On August 31st, 1888, 43-year-old Polly was intoxicated. That night, she'd been turned away at the lodging house she tried to rent a bed for the night. She'd left the place telling the deputy keeper that she'd get the money for the bed. As Polly made her way down the darkened street, she ran into a friend a short time later. The friend begged Polly to come stay with her for the night, but she declined, saying she needed to get the money. Her friend remembered looking at the clock at Whitechapel Church as it struck 2.30 that morning, as Polly walked away. An hour later, it was still very dark, when PC John Neal was walking his beat in Buck's Row. He walked a small, narrow street of warehouses and cottages just behind Whitechapel Underground Station. PC Neal raised his lantern. There appeared to be a figure lying on the street, and as he got closer, he could see that it was a woman lying on her back. As he kneeled down, he brought the lantern up to her face in the darkened street. He could see that her eyes were wide open. She was clearly dead. When he brought the light to her neck, he was shocked to see that her throat had been savagely slashed. Two deep cuts down to the vertebrae. Because what he does is he chokes them off first. He comes up behind them and right away he silences them and he cuts off their oxygen, and he brings them down to the ground, right, until they lose consciousness. And then he cuts their throat, and he cuts their throat deeply. He cut, you know, the, the, the throat wounds are down to the spine. He almost severs their head. So it's, it's he wants them dead. He also wants them dead first uh, by quickly and silently so that he stops their heart, so that when he finally kills them by cutting off essentially right through to the spine, there is less blood, chances of blood splashing on him now, because the victim's heart is no longer pumping. He's sure of that. When Polly's clothes were removed post-mortem, it was revealed that whoever had murdered her hadn't just cut her throat, but had cut her from the groin to the breastbone. The lower part of her abdomen had been ripped open, her organs protruded from the wound. Yeah, he was essentially a necrophile. I mean, he wanted the victims dead as quickly as possible. Uh, and so somebody who's, who's going to be comfortable moving around in that neighborhood and will know the ebb and flow of 
when places close, when people hit the streets. He's a local guy because he just vanishes into thin air every time. When you say a necrophile, what is that? A necrophile is someone who has sex with the dead. Oh, okay. I think we I've I've just heard the term necrophiliac. Okay. So did yeah. he have sex with the dead? Yes. He would kill very quickly his victim and then he would do um his sexual act, which was um cutting them open and extracting their their um viscera. That was what he was doing. That was the sexual act. He was penetrating them with his knife. Okay. Eucharist. Right? So for him to thrust the blade and open a wound is, is a sexual act. It's it's an act of penetration, all right, as a substitute for his penis. Right. But obviously back right. then they didn't know that. No, they they did. They, they did, did know that. Absolutely. Pratt Ebbing already has written the manual, the first on various um, paraphilias, because that's what peakerism is. It's a paraphilia, and it's not the first case. The police's theory was that Polly had gotten another customer after she'd walked away from her friend that night. And the pair went looking for a place where they wouldn't be seen. And at some point, the man got behind Mary and cut her throat. In shock, she raised her hand to stop the bleeding, but given the sharpness of the blade and the viciousness of the slash, she only had minutes to live as the blood drained from her body. But there's a flaw to this reenactment. There's no evidence to support that Polly was ever a sex worker. And yet, that's what her occupation was listed by police at the time of her death. Which means that from the very beginning, the investigation was flawed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. But one thing investigators recognized was that the wounds that were inflicted to Polly were done so with a very specific method, something they would see again a week later. It was early in the morning, around 5.30 a.m., when a woman saw 47-year-old Annie Chapman standing with a man on Hanbury Street. She would describe the man as dark-haired, wearing a brown deerstalker hat. If you're not familiar with late 1880s fashion, Imagine Sherlock Holmes's famous hat. The man was described as shabby genteel. He wore a dark overcoat. The witness would tell police that she'd heard the man say, Will you? And Annie Chapman replied, Yes. The implication in this exchange was that Annie Chapman was a prostitute. But other witnesses wouldn't agree. Annie, like Polly, had spent her money on alcohol, which meant she didn't have enough money to pay for a bed for the night. Polly would ask the man in charge of the lodging house, who was familiar with her, to trust her. She would tell him that she was very ill, but would be good for it. But he refused. Annie was out on the streets, looking for a place to sleep. Just before 6 a.m., the body of Annie Chapman would be found lying at the back door of a building. Her throat had been slashed twice, just as Polly's had. Her abdomen had been sliced open, and the killer had carved out a piece of flesh from her stomach. 
Then he placed it on her left shoulder. He then flung flesh, skin, and her small intestines above her right shoulder. He removed other body parts as well. Investigators started to believe that one man was responsible for the two murders based on the M.O., that he was a lone killer with a hatred of prostitutes. But again, as with Polly, Annie struggled with alcoholism, but there was no evidence to support that she was a sex worker. But that didn't stop the Star newspaper from writing, quote, We are able to see the kind of existence that women of Chapman's unfortunate class are compelled to live. Probably she did not rise until the shades of night enabled her to ply her hideous trade. The fact is that Annie Chapman, like Polly Nichols, had lived a very difficult life and were each just trying to make enough money to survive the streets. After the murders of Polly and Annie, the Whitechapel neighborhood and the police were on notice. Everyone was paying attention, and the community felt unsafe. The story was everywhere, major newspapers around London and across the world, especially after a letter was sent to the Central News Agency. It was written in blood-red ink and signed, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper. The letter was received on September 27, 1888. It says, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on the whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Brand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and I want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, cursed. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha ha. But the murders of two women on the night of September 30th by Jack the Ripper would ratchet the panic into overdrive. The night would later be referred to as the double event. On September 30th, Elizabeth Stride was walking the streets. She had married an older man. But they split up, and when he died, she'd fallen on hard times. And like Polly and Annie, she'd become addicted to alcohol. That night, she was out trying to make enough money for a place to sleep. At around 12.45 a.m., a man had been walking on Commercial Road, and he turned onto Burner Street, and that's when he saw a couple fighting. He believed it was a domestic dispute, an argument. But at some point, the man pushed the woman, and the passerby just kept walking. He didn't want to get involved. But just a few minutes later, another man was on his way home, and he thought he saw something. 
It was 1 a.m., and he walked into Dutfield's yard in Whitechapel, and that's when he found the body of Elizabeth Stride. It's believed that the man who'd been observed fighting with Elizabeth, the one who pushed her down, was Jack the Ripper, and that he'd only stayed long enough to cut Elizabeth's throat before fleeing the scene because he was worried he'd be caught. But Jack the Ripper wasn't done for the night. 46-year-old Catherine Eddowes was murdered just hours after Elizabeth Stride was killed. There was no evidence that Catherine was a sex worker, but like the other women, she was addicted to alcohol, and she too didn't have money to rent a bed that night. She looked for a place to sleep, tucked away in a darkened corner of Mitre Square. And with Catherine's murder, it appeared that Jack the Ripper was amping up. His signature was evolving. Like the others, Catherine's throat had been slashed. She too was disemboweled, but the killer went for Catherine's face, horribly mutilating it. He cut off her nose, slashed her eyelids and lips, carved upside-down Vs into her cheeks. The killer also removed her uterus and left kidney, and it's believed that he took these as trophies. By this time, the medical examiner who would perform the post-mortem on Catherine would be the first person to suggest that Jack the Ripper had some kind of surgical experience because of the way he removed the uterus without damaging the bladder. But Dr. Vronsky doesn't think so. Remember, this is a, a, a world in which there is no refrigeration, so almost everybody is butchering their own meat. You uh, don't have to be a butcher to do what Jack the Ripper did. Or a doctor. Or a doctor, absolutely. Um, or no anatomy. I mean, you know, the, he, you know, there's a big, you know, there's all this big deal that, that, that he ripped out the uterus and the kidneys, and therefore he had to have medical skill and anatomy to be able to, you know, get the, recognize the kidneys and the uterus, right? Who the fuck knows, right? But what likely was that he just opened them up and whatever he got his fingers around and slipped into his hands, he pulled out. The only clue they ever had related to Jack the Ripper was which direction he went after he'd killed Catherine. Investigators noticed that a square of her apron had been cut and taken with. Roughly an hour or so later, they would find the missing piece of apron soaked in blood. They believed it belonged to Catherine because when they took it back to the mortuary, it perfectly fit where the cutoff piece had been taken. This is an important clue because it lends credence to the fact that many believe that the killer was local. Offenders, they can be marauders in a sense that they commit their crimes in areas that they frequent in the course of their day-to-day life, or they can be commuters traveling from their home base to a specific area that they don't necessarily live in. And so everything here, right, about his ability to just... You know, because the, str- the streets there are not exactly deserted, and there are witnesses. And in fact, um, the Whitechapel killer is going to be um, interrupted in 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 his fourth murder. Again, those crime scenes and and also what he's learning to do suggests very much that this is definitely somebody who lives in that neighborhood, um, a local. Without hard evidence, there was a lot of speculation, especially when information from the crime scene was leaked to the press. Like this detail, that on the wall near the body of Catherine Eddowes, a police record would reveal that there was some graffiti that many believed linked the murders to the Freemasons. 
We'll get to the Freemasons in a bit, but basically the graffiti said, quote, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. But the word Jews was spelled J-U-W-E-S. The spelling of Jews and people familiar with Masonic ritual believe that it was a reference to the historic Jubila, Jubilum, and Jubilo. Essentially, Jubila, Jubilum, and Jubilo were three assassins in Masonic law. According to Masonic ritual, Jubila, Jubilum, and Jubilo murdered the chief architect of King Solomon's temple in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago because of the city's corruption, and that this murder of the chief architect is something Freemasons reenact during their secret gatherings. So, investigators believe that the spelling of Jews as J-U-W-E-S was a purposeful misspelling to send a message to investigators on the case who were Freemasons. This conspiracy theory took root even further when, allegedly, Charles Warren, the police chief, who was a Freemason, made the decision to have the graffiti on the wall wiped clean, which was controversial. Now, we don't know why he did that. One could infer that as a member of the secret society, that he wasn't protecting the identity of Jack the Ripper, but rather didn't want people connecting his horrific murders to the Freemasons. And at this time, people were really panicked. He could have wanted to erase it because there was no proof that Jack the Ripper was even the one who scrawled the graffiti message on the wall near Catherine's body at all. And yet, this graffiti would inspire many conspiracy theories that the Masons were connected to Jack the Ripper. And I'll explain why. Freemasonry had its origins in England, a secret society of well-educated and high-born men. The society is based on the principles and values of the liberal arts and sciences. Group members were all over Victorian society, in the royal family, government, aristocracy, the Church of England, local council members, and even the police. It's believed that if Jack the Ripper had been a Freemason from an influential lodge, many believe he would have been protected. There's nothing to support that Jack the Ripper was a Freemason or that police were somehow protecting him because he was a Freemason. But this did spin off into another conspiracy theory, that the Freemasons had ordered the murder of the women because one of them was blackmailing the royal family, particularly Prince Albert Edward Victor, Queen Victoria's grandson and the heir to the throne. Apparently, this conspiracy theory gained traction because Prince Albert Edward Victor was known to go to brothels, and it was alleged that he'd had a child with a woman named Annie Elizabeth Crook, and that she told a group of women, believed to be prostitutes, and that these women started blackmailing the royal family. The Freemasons were brought in to silence the women who were allegedly blackmailing the royal family, and that the police were complicit in erasing the graffiti to remove any suspicion from the Freemasons but there is zero evidence to support this. After the four murders, Whitechapel residents were terrified by the gruesome murder spree, but they were also titillated by the atrocities. People would crowd to the sites where the bodies had been found. They did so to mourn the dead and to try to wrap their head around what had happened. But others were also drawn to these dark places out of a morbid curiosity in the macabre. Graphic drawings in the newspapers would serialize the crimes. 
Remember, this was a time before photographs were in every newspaper, when editors sent artists to the crime scene to draw out the murders in graphic detail. Journalists were buzzing around Whitechapel looking for the next salacious headline. And a favorite angle on the Ripper story were the flaming indictments on the seemingly incompetent police who always seemed to be just one step behind the so-called Jack the Ripper, who in a short time was gaining a mythical type quality. Drawn with a top hat, a medical bag, and, and a dark cloak, a shadowy figure, as if not from this world, but from hell itself, cunning, and most assuredly diabolical. And he's more likely like a Gary Ridgeway than a Ted Bundy. You know, it's not a charismatic guy, but one who's able to turn on the charm at the moment of the, the hunt. Gary Ridgeway, the, the, you know, the notorious Green River Tiller. Everybody for, what, how long have they been looking for that guy? 20 years? Yes. Something like that, mm -hmm. right? Um, remember what we all thought he might be and speculated? And, 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 and this guy is like so boring when you actually get him. It's amazing. Like he had nothing, nothing. Just this blank haircut. That's all there was. And you know, uh, he, he used that. He would say that he used that yeah, to his advantage. Yeah. And they he literally said they they had no idea who I was based on what I look like when he was referring yeah. to his victims. But also, I'm, you know, the police that were chasing him presented as this mild-mannered, like, guy. Yeah, yeah. So you think that suspect, you know, presented like that. And, so and certainly you have a guy who has this amazing ability to move around the neighborhood, almost like, you know, like he turns into a bat and flies away. So it's got to be somebody very local, somebody very um, familiar with that territory. With each new headline, the press speculated about who the murderer could be and residents in Whitechapel had their own ideas. Some were convinced it was a wealthy Englishman of the elite class, a sailor, a butcher, surgeon, a foreigner, someone who didn't belong. The iterations were endless and had little basis in fact. But this suspicion and bias was having an effect in the community. Anyone carrying a medical bag in the East End would be reported to the police or worse. Men would be attacked who bore any kind of resemblance to a killer no one had ever seen before. A lot of innocent men were beaten to a pulp because they were deemed the killer by crowds taking matters into their own hands. But all the while, the real killer was biding his time. It had been nearly six weeks since Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes had been murdered. But on the night of November 9th, 25-year-old sex worker Mary Kelly was behind on her rent. Unlike Jack the Ripper's other victims, Mary had a room to go to every night. This is where she brought her clients. Mary would be seen by one of her friends on the street that night. He would observe a well-dressed man walk up behind her, tap her on the shoulder, and whisper something in her ear. They both laughed and then walked off, their arms linked. The friend watched as they walked down an alleyway, and this was the last time that Mary Kelly would be seen alive. 
Unfortunately, because it was so dark, the only thing her friend would recall about the man was that he was dressed extremely well. Mary Kelly is believed to be the last known victim of Jack the Ripper. The next morning, at 1045, a rent collector showed up at Mary's room. He tapped on her window, and he looks inside and sees the mutilated body of Mary Kelly. This was the first time that Jack the Ripper had killed one of his victims indoors, which meant he had time to be alone. Mary would be found lying on her back on her twin bed. Not only had he cut her throat, but he pulled the flesh from her neck down, stripping the skin from her ribcage. He eviscerated her abdomen and obliterated her face. Her organs and flesh were found on the bed and the side table. He'd taken her heart with him. The murder of Mary Kelly was the first time that the London Police Department would take photographs of the crime scene. It's unclear why they didn't photograph the other murder scenes. One conspiracy theory is that no photos were taken at the four other crime scenes because someone up high within the police department wanted to contain the true identity of Jack the Ripper and that it was a cover-up. But by the fifth and final murder, even though this was a time before the term serial killer even existed, that would be coined nearly 100 years later, investigators working the case understood that there was a pattern to the murders, that Jack the Ripper had a signature. This kind of attack that he was doing was some kind of psychosexual uh, mania. They didn't quite yet define the exact terms we would use today, but the, you know, the, the press referred to them as the murderer. Before he was nicknamed Jack the Ripper, they said he came from a race of Bichelles. And, and Bichel, of course, was this similar murderer who ripped up women in, in, in another era. And, and not the first. And yet, even though they had an idea of what his motivations were, that wouldn't bring them any closer to finding the killer. They had documented his deeds with the photos of Mary Kelly, but there was a total lack of any physical evidence, except that little piece from Catherine Eddowes' apron. But without forensic technology, I mean, they didn't even have a shoe print from the crime scene. They had nothing to tie the apron or anything else to anyone. It's believed that Jack the Ripper was never caught because he knew the area very well and that his appearance and demeanor didn't arouse any suspicions. And then the murder stopped. Over the course of the investigation, Whitechapel's H Division of the Metropolitan Police would lead the case. But they were in overwhelm mode. More than 2,000 people would be interviewed as witnesses, and more than 300 men would be investigated with the help of Scotland Yard and the City of London Police as potential suspects. The police would whittle down a list of several men they believed were strong suspects. They have only four, quote, official suspects. And all the names are familiar to any ripperologist. One, a guy who's known as Kosminski. He is a poor Polish-Jewish local resident at Whitechapel. And today we've actually identified him as either 23 or 24-year-old Aaron Kuzminski, who was a hairdresser who resided in Whitechapel and he had a history of mental illness. Then there was um, Montague John Druitt, right, the 31-year-old barrister and school teacher who committed suicide in December 1888. A lot of fingers pointed 
toward him. And, and of course, indeed, once he commits suicide, you can argue the Jack the Ripper murders ended. The third guy was uh, Mikhail Ostrak, Russian-born, multi-pseudonyms, a thief and a confidence trickster. He was believed to be 55 years old around 1888 and, and had um, a record of um, detentions and asylums. And, and then there was the American, Dr. Francis uh, Trombletti. He was 56, um, American quack. Uh, he was arrested in November of 1888 uh, for gross indecency and fled the country later that month and vanished, kind of. That's it. Um, and th those are the four. But none of these suspects were ever formally charged, or any others. Jack the Ripper was never caught, and he most likely never will be. He's London's ultimate boogeyman, a name that has become infamous around the world for literally ripping into his victims. His deeds are surrounded in myth and mystery and haven't receded into history, but have become a part of our macabre fascination with who he was, what were his motivations, and why he was never caught. But we can't forget the victims who were not only robbed of their lives, but also their humanity. If you're interested in learning more about the canonical victims, Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, I highly recommend Hallie Rubenholt's book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, which was an excellent resource for this episode. Do you think this case will ever be solved definitively? Yeah, I, I can't imagine how you would solve it. In other words, I don't think there's anything that could be matched to any surviving DNA or something that would identify who the perpetrator is. Um, I, don't, I don't see anything at the moment. So I think it, it became unsolvable a long time ago. But, you know, never say never, right? Yeah. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.